I'll remind you that I'm in a uh, series that I've called Untangled, and it's because, again, the church in Corinth, like all churches, has some tangles that they have, and Paul's writing to them to address some of those, to untangle, imagine a rope or some string of some kind that's got some knots in it. It takes some very careful attention to get those knots and tangles out, and uh, Paul's doing that with the church, and he's saying, I want you to address some things. I want you to become whole and strong again, and so I'm addressing you about those things. If you remind, uh, as a reminder, if you recall, when we were in week one, I said that there are several topics that Paul was going to cover, and we are in the rivalries section, and we have several more to go, five in all. In fact, I have a list here of the five that uh, Paul covers in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in the rivalries or factions sections right now. We'll be in sexuality and marriage in the next section, then food and idols, worship practices, and we'll close with resurrection. And so again, Paul saying, I've heard some things about the church that I want to address. And by the way, you've also written to me and said, you want me to address certain things. And so that's all within the book of 1 Corinthians. Well, today we end again the section deal with rivalries, and you'll see that theme come out again in Paul's teaching. You know, when we think about people, sometimes what we think about people does not match them. So we can have an idea in our mind about what people are like, and that might not actually match who they are in person. Years ago, when our kids were little, we had some people come over, uh, some kids come over for a play date for our son. He was in kindergarten. And, you know, it was a fun time. Kids came, they laughed, they had a good time. And my, my wife was de- kind of debriefing with one of the moms at the end of the, the day. And the mom said, truth be told... We were a little nervous to come to your house. And she said, I sat my son down and I said, be on your best behavior. You're going to the pastor's house. (laughs) And, you know, um, my wife kind of laughed at that. And afterwards, my wife and I were saying, I wonder what she thought. You know, you're going to the pastor's house. You're going to have Bible quizzing. Or you're going to the pastor's house. You're going to sit quietly, still in a room somewhere. You know, what she did not realize is that our kids were just as rambunctious as all the other kids, and our house was really not that much different from her house. Our house was no museum of virtue, if you will. I mean, that that was not what was happening in the Boone household. But what we think about people can oftentimes be skewed from reality. And in this passage today, Paul is going to pick up with them about what their view is of him. Now, oftentimes what people think about us doesn't really matter. We just, you know, we just say whatever and we just kind of move on. And normally that's probably the healthiest thing to do. But Paul in this case is trying to knit together a relationship with the Corinthians and what they view about him needs to be corrected and it needs to be strengthened so that their relationship can grow as an apostle to this church And it it can grow into the health that is meant to be. Corinth has a wrong view of Paul. They have a view of what they want him to be. But then there's who Paul really is. And they need a proper view of him. And so in this passage today, it really opens up and says, this is the way you should regard us as apostles. We'll read that in just a moment. This is the way you should regard us as apostles. And remember the the word apostle, again, a very uh, New Testament word, It means somebody who is an eyewitness of the uh, life and death and resurrection of Jesus and now is a leader in the church. That's an apostle. 
And so again, Paul is saying, I want to correct your view of who we are as apostles. Today, we would not have apostles in that sense in the church. None of us who are leaders have had an eyewitness of Jesus' life. I mean, we only know about him by faith all these years later. And so we can't use that word in the same way that Paul used that word. But we can use that word as it relates to leaders in the church. And so again, what I want to do today is I want to apply this to leaders in the church. So when he says apostles, I'm going to apply it to leaders in the church. And I'm going to apply it to all people that would be perhaps elders or deacons or pastors. I want to apply it to perhaps if you're a small group leader or you're a Sunday school class teacher or you're a mentor. If you have that level of responsibility within the church as a leader, then this passage is going to apply to you. And if you are somebody in the church and you are in a relationship and maybe you're under the authority of somebody in one of those roles, which kind of would make all of us, then you are also going to learn how to think about leaders within the church. The subject really for today is how do we regard our leaders? How do we think about our leaders? How do we regard them in relationship? That's what Paul wants to talk about. And what you're going to find today is that what Paul talks about is very countercultural. These are not ideas that any leader would want to attach to themselves. And again, if you're a leader in secular society today, or maybe even a leader in the church at times, you would want people to think of you like this, as smart, capable, powerful, competent, successful, decisive. And the list goes on of all these positive things that you would want people to think about you. And what Paul says today is not that. You're going to find it's very different from the way that we would normally want to be regarded. And I will tell you, this passage is a tremendous challenge for me. I've thought about this passage all week. And I've said, for the things that Paul says that this is true about leaders in the church, do I consider that the truth about me? Do I consider myself in those ways? And so Paul and God has stepped on my toes this week. And I'm like, whoa, these are some heavy things I've got to think about and recalibrate my own view of leadership, my own view of the way that I regard myself as a leader and the other leaders around me. I think as we get into this, you will see what I mean. How should we regard our leaders? Let's find out. First of all, we should regard our leaders as servants and stewards. I am in chapter one now, I'm chapter four now, starting in verse one. Follow along as I read, if you've got your Bible or perhaps your app open. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. There's the two words I, I want you to get. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they should be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. For I am not, a, uh, excuse me, uh, for I'm, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I do not thereby, I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The church in Corinth is likely to be considering their, their leaders right now, or they want to consider their leaders, like rock stars. And they wanted them to be powerful and articulate and in charge. 
And that's what Corinthian society valued, and so that's what they wanted their leaders to be. Paul says, those things are not on top of my mind. What's at the top of my mind is that we are your servants and we are your stewards. Uh, servant here is a word, I mean, the servant occurs a lot of times in the New Testament, but this is a rare occurrence of a word translated servant. And the translation of this key word is that it's an assistant to someone who's in an official position. This person is an assistant to somebody who's in an official position. Paul's very clearly saying, I'm the assistant to Jesus. He is over me. I am under him. And therefore, in extension also, I'm your servant. And that's the way that you should consider me. A servant to the Lord and a servant to you. He also says that I am a steward. And remember that the idea of a steward is somebody who's responsible for the affairs of someone else. And oftentimes in New Testament times, there would be uh, slaves or servants in a home and they would be responsible for all the affairs of that household, even to the level of hiring other individuals or executing contracts on behalf of that house. And so again, he's saying, that's what we are. We are stewards, he says, and we're stewards as it were. Again, we're responsible for somebody else's stuff and we're stewards of the mysteries of God. We're stewards of the things that that for long periods of time, people in the Old Testament wanted to see but couldn't, and now the mysteries of God have been revealed, and we're stewards of those things, and we're responsible to make those things known about the gospel and to apply those into people's lives. Furthermore, he says, again, this section, as it relates to being a a servant and a steward, he says, you know, it's a small thing that you judge me. And what he's saying is, I know you have an opinion about me. I know you have a belief about how I am. And he says, but you know what? That really doesn't register much for me. In fact, I don't even judge myself. What does he mean by that? He's saying, I don't judge myself because I would have one of two tendencies. Either I'd be very easy on myself or I'd be way too hard on myself. And so I don't judge myself. What I do is I just let uh, Jesus and God be the judge. And when Jesus comes back, everything's going to be revealed, even all the way down to the motivations of everybody's heart. So I just let let that go. I let the scorecard be in God's hand. And so, as it were, leaders are not tone deaf to the opinions of the congregation, but they're also not slaves to it. And so there's this balance of saying, we're in relationship, but I'm not going to overly value your judgment of me in order that we might, uh, uh, first of all, be subject to Christ together. Leaders regard your, uh, yourselves as servants and stewards And you have a stewardship, again, that is entrusted to you from God. There is a woman that is very fascinating to me. Her name is Mary Louise Starkey. And she has a very difficult job because she turns ordinary people into servants. Here's what I mean. In today's day and age, the number of uh, people worth $10 million or more in a household has just risen and skyrocketed exponentially. And as a result of that, people who have had newly found wealth want to have somebody manage their household as they obviously learn to do other things. And the reason that this becomes important is because there's a shortage of the number of people that could come into a household and be a household servant. Enter Mary Starkey, who runs the International Institute for Household Management in Denver, Colorado. And I didn't know this, but 
if you're a household servant in today's day and age with some of these very wealthy families, you can command a salary of up to $150,000 a year. So there's some motivation to this. Those enrolled in Mary's program at the Institute are involved in an eight-week program that costs $7,000, and they learn how to master certain mundane tasks of running a household. Things like working with outside vendors, managing household staff, learning table manners, uh, cooking classes, and the all-important how to iron to make sure there's no wrinkles in anything. And so there's a lot of things that somebody has to learn in order to become this household servant. But perhaps the most difficult thing it reports uh, in this article that I read is the issue of personal self-denial. A counseling beautician at the school recently told an attractive young female student to trim her long blonde hair, lose the showy earrings, and lay off the red lip liner. It seems that her good looks were drawing attention away from her employers. Listen to this. Servants are not to draw attention to themselves. Their only goal is to meet the needs of of others. Leaders, church regarding your leaders, they are first and foremost servants and stewards of the Lord Jesus. That's the most important title that could be given to me or to them. Very, very countercultural. Let's move on. We're going to see more. Paul says, second, we are considered as leaders fools for Christ. And now I'm picking up in verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, and we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I don't know if you heard Paul in this section, but Paul becomes rather snarky. He's filled with some sarcasm. And he says, you consider yourselves to be kings. I wish you were because we would love to be kings with you. So obviously they have a view about themselves that is not true. But Paul says, I wish it were because we would love that if we were kings in this earth with you. We will be kings one day, by the way, but we're not right now. This is not the way Paul views himself as, as large and in charge, as it were. He has an accurate view of himself because of the way that the world is constantly treating him. And in this section, Paul gives a, a, a number of titles and descriptions about himself and the way that the world is in relationship to him. And I think the titles and the descriptions that he gives are going to be very abnormal. They're ones that we would not apply to ourselves at all as leaders. But I want to unpack these for you today. First of all, he said, we are on exhibit 
like those who are sentenced to death. And again, that idea of being on exhibit and sentenced to death, those are nowhere close to what we would understand. But if you were in a Roman society, you would click immediately and get that. And let me paint a picture for you. In Roman society, the Roman war machine was awesome. It would go all over the world and win battles on behalf of Rome and extend the Roman Empire again and again and again. And each time they conquered a land, the Roman legion came back home and they came in a victory procession. The victory procession was back into Rome and they were celebrating the victories that they'd had in other countries. I have got a picture for, uh, for you today. It's from the uh, Museum of Art in uh, New York. Uh, it is a painting that was painted in 1789 by Carl Vernet. And it is depicting this idea of this, this victory march back into Rome. And here's what you need to know about this. You, 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 know, you, you need to feel this with me, that there's, there's song and there's music and there's dance and there's the, the drums and the, the marching troops and boom, ba-rum, ba-rum, ba-rum. And we're feeling the victory here and we're Roman citizens and we're loving it. But what you need to know is at the end of the procession is the vanquished troops from the other land. They're in tatters, they're broken, and they're on display for everybody to see that they've been beaten. And if you're the leader at the end of that, you are marching to your death, or maybe just a life of imprisonment, but possibly even your death, and everything that you've known in your world is now shattered and it's broken. Paul is saying that that, that victory celebration that happens in Rome, we are those captives at the end of that. We're the people that appear to be uh, beaten. We're the people that appear to be foolish. And that's who we are, is we are fools for Christ. At least in the world's eyes, that's what we are. And then he uses a series of contrasts in the section. The contrast in the way that the Corinthians view themselves and the way that Paul views himself he says, you are, we are fools, you are wise. You're strong, we're weak. You're in honor, we're in disrepute. He says, we're hungry, poorly dressed, and homeless. He doesn't offer the contrast, but obviously they're not. I mean, they're in a very wealthy city, and they're people who have all of those things, and so they wouldn't be joining with him in that way. And look at the way that he ends his, this section. He ends it with two phrases that are just they're just pregnant, and they're just like, oh, no, I don't want that to be true. But he says, this is what we are considered. We are considered the scum of the earth and the refuse of all things. The scum of the earth is what we are. That's worse than garbage, because scum is something you have to go kind of scrub away and you have to get rid of. You can't just throw it away. Scum, you got to kind of do something with. And he's saying, we are considered as this scum of the earth. Those are very hard words. And honestly, as I even thought about that this week, those are hard words to attach to myself. Those are hard words to say, do, am I ready to be considered as the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things? It's not a way that I normally would think about myself, but again, it's a reminder that that's oftentimes the way the world could view us, again, as Christians and followers of this Savior that they find no, no, no reason to uh, have any interest in. And so again, that's the position that we hold. Young people, I want to talk to you for a minute. And I want to remind you, 
that we are in an environment in which it's going to become increasingly difficult for you to follow Christ. Uh, the thinking in the world today is a far cry from the thinking that is biblical thinking. And if you are going to be found in Christ, there is a price that I think you are going to pay that perhaps previous generations, in America at least, have not and I need to brace you for that. And I need to prepare you for that. That's what we want to do as a church. We want to make sure that we're faithful through whatever happens societally. Let me give you an example of that. And I'm holding a book in my hands. It'll be up on the screen for those of you that are home. But I'm holding a book in my hands that is now a censored book. I bought this book one year ago on Amazon. The book is called When Harry Became Sally. And this book recently was removed from Amazon, and they didn't say why, but it's pretty evident that this book is now considered hate speech. This book is all about the transgender movement, and this book takes the perspective, again, that would be out of the norm in society today, that, that some of the moves towards the transgender are actually harmful to people, so again, I don't know if you know it or not, but again, there are 45 hospitals today in America that are performing uh, sex change uh, uh, operations and doing all of the full uh, cycle of things that happen, hormone blocking and all the other things that happen in reassigning somebody's gender. And today in the world, uh, the common thought is that this is what reigns and that the body is merely clay that can be molded in any way that we want it to be molded. And so again, the mind is supreme, the body will be subjected to it. That is not a Christian thought. A Christian thought is, is that there is a unity between the body and the mind. That's why we even have, although this body is being corrupted, we get a new body. Because a body is so important to the wholeness of us. And we as Christians continue to believe that there is an, ass an assigned gender by God that happens at birth, even evidenced in DNA. And that it's a very reckless thing to do to take young people and to reassign them with a new gender willy-nilly. Uh, you know, today's gender could change almost like the changing of socks. And it's like, no, no, no. There's, there's a cost to that. There, there's, there's a harm done in that. And we would be saying, slow down. We would be saying, let's reconsider. This is a change away from where all societies have been for hundreds and thousands of years. And we would be the ones that would be wanting to put the brakes on all of that and would have theological as well as medical reasons. And that's what's in this book is medical reasons why that could be very problematic. But we are voices that are crying in the wilderness Many of the things that, again, we believe are now considered hate speech or at least backward thinking, and we're pushed off to the edge of society in our thinking in that way. And by the way, that shouldn't surprise us. Why? <laughs> because we're fools for Christ. Because that, anytime we're in step with our Savior, oftentimes that's not in step with where society is. And here's what I'm concerned about. Much more concerned about, I'm much more concerned about this than I am about changing society. Society is going to do what society does. But I'm concerned most about being faithful in the church to Christ in the midst of all that. 
of staying in schools, of staying in the marketplace, of staying in jobs, and remaining faithful to the Lord, even though the society may go in a different direction. And, and that's, what I'm, that's what I'm invested in. That's what I want to have happen, is that our church remains faithful to Christ, no matter what happens in the world. And again, I'm talking to young people, get ready, because I think the ride is going to be rougher. The ride is going to be rougher for you. And so we as a church want to do all we can to prepare you for that and to love you through that, to help you through that. And to, it's, it's, a, it's a very mystifying landscape in our society today. So how do we march into that together and how do we support each other through it? Well, that's what Paul is interested in too. And he's saying, we need to be ready to become fools for Christ. All right, there's one more thing I want you to see in the passage today. Third, we consider leaders as admonishing fathers, and I'm picking up in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I have become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel." I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in, in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with, a, with love in a spirit of gentleness. Paul says that he is like a father to them because he was the one that introduced them to Christ in the first place. And he takes on this role of father, which is beyond the role of a guide or the role of a teacher. It's somebody who cares deeply for them. Fathers care sometimes with words and guidance that can be difficult for children but is needed for their betterment. Let me give you an example. Years ago, uh, again, we had, have two children, and you can tell almost instantly whether your kids are in one of two categories. Your kids are either in the spending category or the saving category. And they can be raised in the exact same household, and one will have a penchant for spending, and the other will have a penchant for saving. And perhaps you know that about yourself, Oftentimes, opposites attract, so one, one husband or wife will be the spender, the other the saver, and so together you kind of average that out. And you know that about your kids. Well, we had a spent, one spender and one saver. Our son was the spender. He could not keep a buck in his pocket. And so as a, a, a loving and admonishing father and mother, mom too, uh, we came along and said, okay, we have a rule here. And the rule is that you have to keep a list of the things that you want and you have to want those things for at least two weeks before you buy them. And so my son started to make his list. And what he found magically was, if he left something on his list for two weeks, two weeks later, he wanted something else. And so his list started again. It reset. And, you know, by the way, he had money in his pocket. And he did learn how to buy things. But he learned how to buy things much more strategically. We, in essence, were saving him from himself as a young man. Uh, Here's what our son told us this year. He said, I am so glad that you taught me that. Because he says, still to today, 
I will make a list of the things that I want. And if it's there two weeks from now, then I may consider buying it. But I give myself that curing period to know if I really need that. And sometimes we just give our children the things that they need. Why? Because we love them and because we want their wholeness. We want the correction to bring a wholeness in their lives. And that's what Paul says he is doing with the churches. He is an admonishing father. Uh, He expands on that a little bit. Let me explain some of the ways. He says, I don't want you to have shame, but I want you to have admonishment. And again, shame is a feeling of unworthiness. Paul says, that's not what I want. I don't want you to feel unworthy here. Uh, Your grace is being given to you by God, and I want you to welcome that and, and know that you have a place within that. But I do want your admonishment. In other words, I want correction to your wholeness because that's what I want for you the most is your wholeness. He also says, I I can be an initiator. In fact, I I want you to follow me. Do the things that I do, because I'm a model of the way that you follow Christ. And so he says, things are caught, not taught. So listen to me, but also follow the way of life that I have, and you'll do well in viewing me as a father in that way. And third, he says, I know how to have the right acts at the right time. And so he says, I would love to come to you in a spirit of gentleness, but guess what? If I need to come with a rod, I will. And by that, that Paul does not mean he's going to come beat them up. He doesn't mean he's going to bring a physical rod into the church and start beating people. But he's saying, I'm coming with a level of authority. And he says, talk is cheap. We have, all have a lot of talk. But he says, I'm coming with power. Well, what does Paul mean by that? Well, I think we need to remember, Paul, you know, he, he had some power that was involved in his life. Paul actually walked into cities and had the healing of Christ that was sometimes on his hand and he was able to heal people. Paul survived imprisonments. Paul was bitten even by a snake in which it had no effect upon him, a viper on one of the islands during a shipwreck. I mean, Paul's a tough dude. And Paul's saying, when I come to you, this is not going to be about talk, but it's going to be about power. And so if you say that you have this power, I'm going to ask you, you know, demonstrate that because I'm able to. And so Paul again is saying, I'm like this father, and I have the authority to come and to admonish you in the faith. And leaders, we too have that level of authority. We handle that very wisely, but that's the level of authority that God is investing in us also. All right. The way of the church in Corinth was very important. It was the way of viewing their apostles or their leaders was very important. And Paul said, I've got to correct that view. They wanted a superstar, but Paul was simply a servant. They wanted somebody who was famous and relevant. Paul said, what you got is just a fool for Christ. They wanted a hero. Paul says, I'm simply a father that cares about your well-being. Today, there are many of you who are here or watching online that are considered leaders of the church. And so my question to you is, how does this passage affect you? I'm hoping that it brings a level of humility to you. I know it did to me. Being in the church is not about climbing a ladder of success. In fact, many times if you hold a leadership position in the church, it will be a cost to you. There will not be something that just registers to your benefit until the coming of Christ. But right now, there's oftentimes just hurt that comes with that or trial that comes with that. And we need to be able to understand that. We need to know that, first of all, we are servants and stewards of Christ. And all leadership rises or falls on that very notion in the church. If we're not, first of all, that, we've lost everything. If you're not a leader in the church, well, then I'm talking to you also. 
And what do you expect or how do you regard your leaders? They're not perfect. They're not to be idolized on the one hand, and they're not to be belittled or beaten down on the other hand. Instead, here's what leaders need. Leaders need our respect, and they need our honest attempt to come alongside and to build the church and to follow Christ. And so there's a role for you, whether or not you are a leader today, to apply this to yourself, or whether or not you're in the church and have leaders around you, all of us have a role to play in how we regard leaders in the church. Here's the point. Let's regard leaders the way God does. There's no higher calling than that. Let's just regard leaders the way God does. Lord, you're always appropriate in all of the things that you say. You're always accurate. You're always right. And I'm the first to say, Lord, I would not necessarily take these titles in this passage for myself, but being corrected by your Holy Spirit, I want to. And I want to be found as as servant. I want to be found as steward. I want to be found as foolish, at least in the world's eyes, in my faithfulness to you. And I want to be found fatherly. And I pray that not just upon me, but upon all of the leaders here at CCF. And I pray that the church might have a right view of leaders also, a view that is in honor to you. We love you, Lord. We continue to be taught by your word. And we uh, hang upon every word that you say, wanting to apply it to our lives. This we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen.